Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin, documenting Israel-Hamas war protests. Plus, a tough time for restaurants, still very little cell phone competition, misleading product packaging, fan violence at sporting events, and earning income in retirement. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Well, protests and rallies here in Canada about the Israel-Hamas war have raised some eyebrows and in many cases raised some tensions as well. And in some cases, they're becoming more and more disruptive. Do not touch me. You touch me. Don't touch me. Shame on you! You terrorists! Back up! Back up! Stay Our next guest has been documenting a few of these protests and shared a now viral video of Toronto police delivering coffee to pro-Palestinian protesters who were blocking the Allen 401 overpass last weekend, and uh, as well a video of protesters at Nathan Phillips Square during Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow's recent skating party. Karima Saad is a lawyer and investigative journalist and doing a fine job on this case. She also joins us now here on GMH. Karima, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Why did you feel the need to document these protests and rallies? Well, I've actually been documenting protest, uh, I call it the protest circuit, um, for three years now. So I started with the anti-mandate rallies, which evolved into drag story time and, uh, you know, things of that nature and various causes along the way. Uh, and most recently, this is the issue that has captured people's attention. Some videos that you've shared, and we've heard audio from them just a couple of seconds ago, some of these videos show you even interacting with some of the protesters. They're asking you questions, you know, why are you are you here? Who are you with? What, what are they sharing with you? Well, they're, I, I would say emotions run very high. Uh, and as a result, um, people are scared and suspicious, at times paranoid um, about the reality of being documented at these public events. And for me, I, I think the tension between freedom of expression and civic engagement and public order uh, is something that is worth looking into. So I appreciate being able to be there on the ground and, and speak with people. Have you ever felt unsafe or even uneasy at any of these protests? It happens. Um, you know, it, at times it even escalates into sort of minor physical um, situations. Um, but I, I take as hands off an approach as possible uh, and am situationally aware. Um, and over the years have worked on trying to de-escalate um, when those tensions rise. Easier said than done in some cases, I, I would guess. <laughs> for sure, <laughs> for sure. But uh, it's it's always touch and go, um, and I learn as I go. Um, but I, I think that, you know, the specific dynamics of what actually happens on the ground, that micro level, um, is important because it relates to the bigger issues and affects policy in some ways. Karim Assad has been documenting these uh, protests, both uh, pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli, that have erupted uh, across this province. Uh, Karim is a lawyer and an investigative journalist and joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. There is, uh, there, there's got to be some common ground in this regard. It's It's been... Uh, you know, something to behold, not necessarily from a war front, but from just a freedom of speech and in some cases hate speech front, because we're hearing some of that as well. Have you noticed some of that as well at these uh, protests? 
Yeah, and and there is that line. Um, I would say the line has been somewhat blurred between what constitutes activism and what is criminal behavior. Uh, And that's not specific to this cause. I think there's been something of an erosion of these norms uh, over the past few years. Um, And, you know, I've seen arrests on both sides of the fence uh, and it, it... is troubling, but when you speak of common ground, um, it, it is possible uh, at times to achieve that. It, it's very challenging, though, um, and, and my focus has been mostly documenting the Canadian response as opposed to the, the broader global conflict. Mm-hmm. Is anyone listening at these protests, though? I mean, there, there was one phrase, I think it was, you're skating as bombs are dropping at the Nathan Phillips Square you know, skate party. And obviously, they're getting their message out there, and that's why they are there. They're they're promoting their cause. They want to see you know change where their families are in in Gaza and in is in in Israel. But is anyone listening? It's a lot easier to shout than listen. Um, and I think for a lot of protesters, just that act itself is cathartic. Um, so you know, a lot of people are feeling powerless right now. Um, in with global events transpiring as they do. Um, And there are legitimately traumatized people um, who have experience of family members or family homes um, being lost or, you know, killed. And that doesn't put people in necessarily the best state of mind um, to be polite and thoughtful um, and and receptive to hearing others. So that, that is a hurdle. Um, And protests generally, I would say, aren't the most conducive to the exchange of ideas. They're more about the demonstration and spectacle. As usual, police are thrust into the middle of this to try to keep the peace. And again, in many cases, it is easier said than done, as there are many challenges, both logistically and, you know, keeping everyone, you know, safe and and not turning it into a powder keg. How have you... uh, when you look at the police response, what comes to mind? Are they doing a good job, a decent job, a poor job? I think that police could be more proactive. Um, and by that, I don't mean crackdowns. I think we should all be very wary about calling for intense police crackdowns when it comes to civil liberties. Um, you know, because one issue, like the issues change. And so we don't want that to be normalized, in my opinion. Um, But as far as the operations on the ground, um, I've witnessed some choices that to me seem to worsen situations um, and little attempts or gestures of goodwill. uh, You referred to that incident with um, police and and handing over the coffee Mm -hmm. that then gets misinterpreted. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think police do have a role here uh, and the way that they interacted with the Freedom Convoy, for example, um, there should be lessons learned from that um, that I don't see being applied at this moment. Karima, appreciate the time. Good luck uh, with the next protest and rally that you cover. Thanks again for having me. Karima Saad is a lawyer and investigative journalist documenting uh, what has been happening with these protests, both pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Restaurants Canada is out with a dire warning. It says if the government 
doesn't extend the repayment deadline for the Canada Emergency Business Accounts. You'll likely have heard the acronym SEBA. If the government doesn't extend this deadline, there's going to be devastating consequences for the food service industry. And this warning comes as 53% of food service operators in Canada are already losing money or barely breaking even. And that compares with just 12% pre-pandemic. So with more than half the food service operators in this nation already on the brink, uh, the extension of this deadline for many of them is very much needed. Max Roy is a vice president with Restaurants Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Max, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Sam. Doing great. How are you? I'm good. Devastating consequences. What does that mean? What could that mean for the industry? So the data we have is that one in five restaurants that do have a SIBA loan said it will have to close some or all of their locations in the coming months. So if that deadline is not extended, we're going to see a, a rash of closures across the country. That's that's what we're we're seeing. That's the data we've collected from our members. That's what we're seeing absolutely across the board. It's with the high inflation that's going on, the labor shortages, when you actually can get people to work for you, then you have that SIBA loan. Uh, we're coming to a point where uh, we're at the 11th hour. The people... The restaurant operators, they need a bit of time so that they can repay their loans at this point. I would imagine that most of those who would close would be mom-and-pop operations? It's a mix, but yes, you're right, because when you look at the data, it's 82% of uh, independent restaurant operators that do have a SIBA loan at this point. So our listeners are thinking, okay, a bunch of restaurants are going to close, but it's much more than that because we're going to lose a bunch of jobs here as well. It's a lot of jobs. It's a lot of money, too, that will not be put back into the pockets of taxpayers, right? Because uh, if they cannot repay and they close, then that's money that is lost uh, under government as well. So it's it's really a tragedy all across the board. Could this also, I would think, you know, in, in people's minds who are thinking, you know, one day I'm going to open up a restaurant in this country. And they're hearing stories like this, and they might be thinking, it's probably just not worth it. Well, with the, as you mentioned, the 53% of restaurants not are barely breaking even or operating at a loss. It certainly it does not make it super attractive at this point, for sure. So the repayment deadline for the Canada Emergency Business Account, the SIBA loans, is January 18th, which is you know eight days from now. How much longer do you think restaurants would need to repay these loans? Are you asking for a, a year-long extension, a few months? What What would be ideal? What we've been asking is for the, the repayment plan to, to be pushed back to the end of 2024. That's the amount of time we think that restaurant operators would need to, and so that we could save most of them. Uh, and that's the ask we've been uh, we've been uh, uh, doing to the government. We haven't heard, uh, we've been given pretty much a hard no at this point. We're still pushing, we'll keep pushing for sure. But right now what we did was really um, tell our members what are the options that they have ahead of, of them. But yes, what we're asking is a year long, uh, one more year just to pay back the loan. Max Roy is vice president with Restaurants Canada. We're talking about the SIBA uh, loans, the Canadian or Canada Emergency Business Account. And there is a repayment deadline of January 18th. And nearly 900,000 organizations have applied uh, and have received this loan over the course of this program, which you can clearly see if even half of those restaurants say, all right, we got to close the doors, that will have a devastating consequence on the industry. Absolutely. For us, it's uh, it's really detrimental. So that's why we keep pushing. We'll keep pushing till uh, the, the last minute, for sure. Is there? Do you see a light at the end of the tunnel? Is there some kind of 
back and forth with the government, or have they held firm as, uh, on this January 18th date? What we've heard so far is really a hard no one see, but we, but we keep pushing. And we're also trying to come up with other alternatives that could uh, be interesting for the government as well. What would some of those alternatives be? One of the, the one that we're pushing right now is uh, uh, on the alcohol tax. So the alcohol tax is indexed automatically on inflation. So that would mean a, a 4.7% increase this year. So what we're asking them, because they did it last year, is for them to, to put a ceiling on this at 2%, just give a bit of breathing room for a lot of uh, mom-and-pop restaurants uh, across Canada. Well, it sounds like Restaurants Canada is uh, willing to find a workaround. Let's hope the federal government does as well. Max, thanks for the information this morning. Enjoy your day. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. You too. Max Roy is a vice president with Restaurants Canada, as you heard him say. Uh, one-fourth of those who receive these loans are likely to miss this repayment deadline. That's one-fourth of 900,000 organizations. And the way this worked was that these were interest-free loans. This is during the pandemic. Interest-free loans of up to $60,000 for small businesses, nonprofits. And this this goes beyond just restaurants, but we're talking about restaurants in this case. And with nearly 900,000 applying and receiving these loans, well, now the deadline of January 18th is on. And for many restaurants in this country who are already on the brink of perhaps closing the doors, they're looking at this repayment saying, we just can't do it. Up to a third of this business loan, these SIBA loans, can be forgiven if they're able to pay the remaining outstanding amount by January 18th. So there's clearly incentive that the problem is they don't have the money to repay even up to a third of the loan or, or whatever's, you know, whatever's remaining. And any businesses that miss the deadline will lose out not only on the forgivable portion, that one third, they'll see their debts converted to a three-year loan with interest of 5% annually. And so you can imagine many of these businesses, many restaurants are thinking, I just can't afford it. Some are turning to financial institutions for uh, a loan program that's a little more uh, conducive to their budget. But it sounds like a lot of restaurants and a lot of businesses will be missing this deadline and then making a really tough decision. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Talking cell phones, cell phone plans, cell phone prices here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Are you happy with the price of your cell phone plan. Most people have voted no in our poll question of the day, which you can find on X at AM900CHML. But I can guarantee you that most of the people feel the need to have a phone for a variety of reasons. Most of the people who have voted no feel the need to have their phone. They don't like paying the bill. I don't think anybody does. But they feel the need to have that phone. But in the same sense, they are also shopping around, especially if you're... With a company like Rogers, who right now is saying, listen, our prices are going up. And so people are shopping around. And if you're like me, you're shopping around as well, because I'm, I'm with Rogers right now. And, and one of the questions I'm asking myself as I'm looking at all these different prices and plans is, does cheaper mean better? And all the while, you'll remember not too long ago, Industry Minister uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne said, listen, Canadians, shop around. You'll find some good prices. And I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. What happened to increasing competition in the marketplace? 
Vas Bednar is the executive director of the Master of Public Policy in Digital Society program at McMaster University and joins us here on GMH. Vas, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm good. Let's start with the competition. Why does Canada not open up our borders to other companies like those in the U.S. to say, hey, come on in? You know, there are, our borders actually aren't totally closed when it comes to telecommunications. We have a particular threshold. I believe it's 10 or 15 percent. Uh, anyway, we're not as closed as it seems or as we feel we are to to other competitors. Uh, they have just found in the past that it's not worth the price of trying to compete here. Um, I wrote a piece about this in the Toronto Star a couple of years ago. There, you know, there was kind of a debate. So when we think about more competition and we focus on just counting the number of competitors, we sort of miss the structural realities of how competition takes place. And that's, I think, what Canada is starting to focus on a little bit more. You know, what is the real barrier to entry here? And why are these companies able to kind of capture us or charge rents for so long on their on their physical infrastructure and kind of, yeah, how hard it is to actually shop around? Wasn't that long after the massive outage that impacted Rogers that the company said, listen, our, our prices are going to go down. And now a year or so later, or however many months it was, the prices are going up for some customers. So what's changed? Well, the fine print of these price increases is that they're really targeting customers that have open, more open, flexible contracts. So you could see it as a way to kind of discipline or nudge people that have chosen the privilege of flexibility with their plan to get locked into more reliable recurring revenue. The companies have probably run, you know, sophisticated models to understand how many people this will scare away and how many people this will just nudge into finally locking into a contract. So from a consumer protection standpoint, you know, we could ask, is it reasonable, is it appropriate to penalize or, you know, I'll use the the word discriminate against people that aren't locking into an annual or multi-year plan. There are plenty of reasons for people to maintain that kind of flexibility. And frankly, as customers, I think it's a really powerful thing for us to be able to do so that we can keep shopping around without paying absurd kind of fake junkish fees when we cancel a contract. For those who are shopping around, whether they're currently with Rogers or another company and they're just thinking, yeah, I I think I can get a better deal. Does cheaper mean better? I don't know about cheaper meaning uh, better. I, I think it's satisfying for people who are able to take the time and renegotiate or, you know, bundle or get a better price for their family. And I don't begrudge anyone doing that. But I sort of hate when that kind of labor falls on the shoulders of everyday people, right? It's not our job to, you know, constantly threaten these companies and take the time and the work of trying to shop around. I also think the ability to slightly negotiate with these firms now and then is a reminder of their power, right? There's not enough competition in the marketplace that we really see prices coming down comprehensively. So people are sort of left, you know, speaking to somebody who's probably, frankly, not a full-time employee with the company and may not be receiving benefits, probably an outsourced representative of the firm, which is a whole other can of worms, Mm -hmm. but I think speaks to 
how these companies behave and structure themselves. You're exactly right. Vass, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time and waking up with us this morning here on Good Morning Hamilton. Thank you. Vass Bednar is the executive director of the Master of Public Policy in Digital Society program at McMaster University, talking to us about cell phone plan prices. And it's the focus of our poll question at AM 900 CHML on X. Is your cell phone plan worth the price? And I know there's some gray area there and you're looking at the number and thinking, am I getting value for what I am paying? Well, 83% are saying no, not getting that value. 17% say yes couple of texts coming in. Uh, this one saying, my cell phone plan, totally worth it. Love to see the price. Brian says, it could have been worth the price when you bought your plan, but when they raise the cost, that happens all the time with big carriers like Rogers and Bell and Telus. Absolutely right. And also Carl says, uh, oh, Carl earlier this morning said that his price tag was about 40 bucks a month. And the data charge, 55 a month for 30 gig, and he only uses 10. They keep offering better deals. I tried to drop down. They would charge me more money. Yeah, that sounds about right, Carl. Sounds about right. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, one of our favorite topics here, not only on the show, but in Canada, is talking about food, food prices, shrinkflation. We've talked about that from time to time. Well, here's another one for you, and it is product packaging and misleading product packaging. There was a recent survey conducted by the Canadian Centre for Food Integrity that showed that this is a a pretty big concern among Canadians. 62% of those Canadians who were surveyed said that they were concerned about misleading food labels and marketing. From cereal boxes to bags of potato chips, packages of granola bars... Why are companies in Canada allowed to use misleading images on their product packaging? Dr. Mary LeBay is a professor emeritus in nutrition policy at the University of Toronto and joins us here on GMH. Dr. LeBay, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Rick. Just fine. Are there products that are mis... Well, we know there's products that have misleading packaging. Is there, are, is there a segment like cereal or potato chips that are more common to mislead the public? You know, Rick, I'm not sure if they actually are more common. I think probably two things are going on. One, they're probably in the eye of the consumer more common because just about everybody has, for example, breakfast cereals in their home, Hmm. you know, as well as I do. You sit there with the box at your table, you flip it around, you look at it. So it's probably a phenomena of just more consumers are looking at more cereal boxes than many other types of foods, which, you know, say a soup, you might only pull out every couple of weeks, maybe once a month. So I think that might be part of it, but then maybe it is. I haven't actually done the research to see if there's, you know, that's more prevalent in cereals than any other types of product. Are companies deliberately misleading the public with what they're showcasing on their packaging? Well, I think it's just deliberate and I think it's marketing, whether it's misleading in the eyes of the law, that's one thing, or misleading in the eyes of the consumer, I think that's a second thing. And I would absolutely agree with some of the consumers who felt that was misleading. And unfortunately, the regulations as they're currently written allow them to put those little tiny disclaimers in the corner and sort of get around um, these, what I would call to the consumer, misleading product packaging with these great big pictures of blueberries, fruits that are 
don't actually any aren't any actually any of those fruits in that cereal. Does Health Canada need to do a better job of either fine tuning their regulations or cracking down on companies that do kind of mislead the public? Well, I think there's um, two people, two groups involved, two government agencies. Health Canada writes the um, you know the food and drug regulations, and so does the Food Inspection Agency. And if it's not a health and safety, it's often usually more often the Food Inspection Agency. And not only do they have some reg- uh, regulations that I'm thinking many of these types of regulations about you know misleading packaging fall under the you know, Safe Food for Canadians uh, regulations. And they do really absolutely prohibit misleading advertising and marketing and product pictures and product names. But I think it's how the Food Inspection Agency has interpreted those regulations. And what they do is they then in turn create policies. They actually have a guideline for industry and how they interpret the policies. And I think they're really interpreting these types of policies much too leniently and giving the industry much more wiggle room to, you know, put these great big pictures on product packages where it isn't there just by putting a little statement. If you look at some of the cereals that were featured, there's a little tiny bit of writing in the corner that says, you know, um, contains uh, natural or artificial flavors. It doesn't say does not contain any blueberries. Mm Well, and and you're referring to a CBC article, and I was going to get to this too, because this is what I found really interesting, was that Vector cereal, and I think everyone considers it a cereal, this particular package had in the the corner 13 grams of protein. But only after reading the nutrition label does one realize that that 13 grams will only be realized when you add milk. But Health Canada says that Kellogg can add milk to the protein count because Vector isn't a cereal it's a meal replacement. So I'm thinking, what's it doing in this cereal aisle then? Yeah, and I think there's two reasons there. Um, it just happens to be in a format that looks like a cereal. And the Vector cereal has a lot more you know, vitamins and minerals and more protein than most, um, you know, not a huge lot, but more than most breakfast cereals. And at the time when that product was introduced, it had, for example, higher levels of vitamin and minerals than you could put in a other breakfast cereal. And so in a way, they use another set of regulations that already existed to put their product on the market. The problem with that is it's totally legal. It is meets the regulations for a meal replacement. But the problem, and I say why it's misleading to the consumer, the consumer sees that product with the breakfast cereals. It looks like a breakfast cereal. So they expect it to be a breakfast cereal. And you know, as well as I, if you went out and asked hundreds of consumers, I don't think you'd find one consumer who knows the difference between a cereal and a meal replacement. <laughs> and so it's it's not sitting in the grocery store with all the other meal replacements, those uh, you know, suppl- nutritional supplements. And so no wonder the consumer is confused. Even though it's perfectly legal, it's being marketed and put with breakfast cereals. And so the consumer would think it's a breakfast cereal. In our final minute together, I get the sense that a lot of consumers, because of shrinkflation and skimpflation and these product packaging, are are really more, maybe more than ever, focused on what they are buying. Would you agree? Oh, totally. I think consumers these days with, you know, knowing how tight uh, food budgets are, are looking to get the best value they can for their dollars. And... 
when they see these types of mislead to them at least misleading marketing they really feel that they are not getting value for money and that um you know and once consumers start looking for it i think now consumers are really attuned to hey there's something wrong there's something broken and i think agencies like health canada the food inspection agency have to really start looking at it and say are these regulations doing the best to present protect consumers from this type of misleading marketing at least misleading to the consumer even though it meets the regulations yes agreed and well said dr labay we'll leave it there thank you so much for your time this morning Oh, good morning, Rick. Thank you as well. Have a good day. You too. Dr. Mary LeBay is a professor emeritus in nutrition policy at the University of Toronto. And I guess the warning would be just check out the label as opposed to just looking at the packaging because in many cases you're not getting what you think you are buying. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I want to talk about violence at sporting events, because as you're hearing in the news, the Six Nations man has been killed. He was shot and died at the scene after he went to the Buffalo Bills-Miami Dolphins game in South Florida on Sunday night. And what we've heard from Miami police is that 30-year-old Dylan Isaacs, who was a Bills fan, was walking with friends near Hard Rock Stadium after the game. So the game's over. Bills beat Miami in what was a pivotal game going into the NFL playoffs. And Dylan was shot after he got into a verbal argument with an unknown man who they say tried to intentionally hit Isaacs and his friends with the car that that person was driving. And after briefly chasing the vehicle, which was speeding away from the scene, Isaac's friends say that the man who was driving got out and shot him. And again, he died at the scene. Police say the vehicle that the gunman used was later recovered in West Palm Beach, probably stolen. Six Nations of the Grand River says Isaacs worked as an archaeological community monitor and was dedicated to helping his community. And there's a GoFundMe campaign that has now been set up for Isaacs' family. He's survived by his mom and his brother. This fundraiser is aiming to, well, as, as usually in this case, cover the costs of funeral arrangements and burial and, and, in this case, travel. You can get more information on this story and the link to the GoFundMe page in our story online at 900CHML.com. It is, is simply a tragedy. By the way, the fundraising goal was $50,000. At last check, Shona just chimed in to say that 92 k has already been raised, which is phenomenal. Hopefully that number continues to climb as this family continues to grieve. But violence at sporting events, and we'll just use football in this example because we have a football team here in Hamilton in which sometimes violence breaks out in the stands. Whether it's Ticats versus Argonauts and, you know, fans from opposing teams get a little too liquored up and then go at each other because they don't like what the other one's saying or how the other team is performing or whatever the case is. It could be the smallest thing that triggers an episode like we've seen in, in many cases around the CFL and the NFL. And when it comes to the NFL, there's actually statistics on this. A survey by Sportsbook Review, which talked to NFL fans, found that 39% of them have witnessed a crime at a game. And 7% say they were victims themselves. Here's just a, a small example of what is happening at one NFL stadium, SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles, the home of 
not only the Los Angeles Rams, but the L.A. Chargers as well. And it sounds to me, I wouldn't want I wouldn't want to go to a game at SoFi Stadium after hearing this. As the Chargers face the Cowboys on the field Monday night, several brawls broke out in the stands and in the concourses. Everything was just so chaotic. It was like one fight here, one fight there. Eric Macedo was leaving the game when he witnessed opposing fans begin to argue. Within seconds, he says multiple fights involving nearly a dozen people broke out. Soon as like one person jumped in, another person tried to stop the fight, and so they end up getting hit. So that brings more people involved. Up in the 500 level, a similar scene. Hey, hey, hey. This fight broke out in front of Kevin Walsh, who says a Chargers fan was sucker punched in the face after a verbal disagreement with two Cowboys fans. Clobbered him right in the side of the face. Him and his partner looked at, like they stumbled like two or three rows down the down the rows. And it was honestly like horrific for me to see. A recent poll of 3000 football fans ranked SoFi Stadium as one of the safer stadiums across the country. But videos of violence at SoFi is often circulated on social media. Like this video of a fan being thrown over a railing last year. And months before that, fan Daniel Luna was in an induced coma after being hit by another fan. Macedo, who is a season ticket holder, believes violence at the stadium is getting worse. It's been getting worse like every, almost every game, to be honest. Welsh, who is a football content creator and visits stadiums across the country, says fights are an NFL problem. Last month, a Patriots fan died after an apparent scuffle at Gillette Stadium. But there definitely has to be something to be done to make situations like that be more punishing and, and be more feared that you that you shouldn't take it that far ever. Both men say in each case, there were few if any security around. One or two, three, but that was it. Tried to run down and find some like a worker to tell or to try to call security or and couldn't find anybody. And they agree on one thing, drinking plays a big factor in the violence. While stadiums and teams across the country will need to search for the solution. The violence is leaving even the most dedicated fan fed up just thinking to myself like that just like ruined like the whole game for me list of most dangerous stadiums according to the sportsbook review survey lincoln financial field in philadelphia at&t stadium in dallas gillette stadium in new england metlife stadium in new york and cleveland brown stadium in cleveland and the one stadium where women don't feel comfortable in the NFL, Ford Field in Detroit, clearly number one, way ahead of Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis. Uh, so whether you're going to a, a Ticats game, a Leafs game, an NFL game in the not-too-distant future, just be wary of this apparent increase in violence when it comes to sporting events. It is absolutely tragic what has happened to Dylan Isaacs, and our thoughts and prayers go to his family this morning. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. What's not odd is retirement planning. Where are you with that? Kind of looking around thinking, oh, I should get started. You might be in a bit of trouble, (laughs) depending on your age. But we know this, with fewer Canadian companies offering traditional pensions these days, it's vitally important to include a retirement income into your financial plan. But the question is, where do you start and and how much do you need in terms of money when you do retire? Well, Tribe Delta Private Wealth has come out with its 2024 Canadian Retirement Income Guide. And in the guide is 10 potential sources of income in retirement as well as some other ideas for tax 
minimization. So if you're nearing retirement or in retirement right now, this I'm sure is going to be very informative for you. Ted Rechschaffen is the president and CEO, portfolio manager and financial planner with Tri-Delta Private Wealth and joins us here on GMH. Ted, good morning. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Rick? I'm good. Thanks for joining us again to talk about this guide and retirement income and and planning and tax minimization. Let's get to, I guess, the biggest question before we get into some of these potential sources for income in retirement. How much do we need to retire? I know everyone's different, but is there a is there a number that we should be striving for? You know, the reality is there really isn't. Um, and the, the biggest driver of it is lifestyle, right? We have, we have clients that spend 250000 a year, and we have clients that spend 45000 a year, right? And, and that is the most important factor. I mean, we have, if, you, if you don't spend very much money and you qualify for, you know, full Canada pension plan and old age security and you're a married couple, Maybe you save almost nothing, and you're able to cover your needs. So, so it's really hard to have a rule of thumb on that. Are there things that people just don't think about when they are thinking about their retirement plan? Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, the first thing is, I think a lot of people think retirement expenses will be higher than they actually are. Um, and the reason I say that is one of the first things we do is we say, what are your expenses? What is your budget and what's changed? You know, do you still need to save money to put money into an RRSP in retirement? No, you don't. Um, you know, do you have lower childcare expenses in retirement? I'm assuming that's true. Um, in some cases, um, I always joke about people saying, you know, your, your 80 year old parent, um, how often do you see them wearing the same clothes, you know, all the time? Um, you know, you're just not spending as much money on clothing as maybe you did when you were 40. Um, Nor do you care about fashion either. (laughs) That's that's true. That's a a big driver. So, so what happens is people's spending habits change. The other thing we see in retirement is that people will retire and they say, here's my things that I really want to do in retirement. And often in their first couple of years of retirement, they may spend more money because they're traveling more. There's, there's bucket list things they want to do. But then if you look 10 years ahead, they're probably spending a lot less than they were in their first couple of years. So a lot of things a lot of things change in retirement. Well, we only got a couple of minutes, so we're not going to get to all 10 potential sources of income in retirement. But maybe focus on what you think is the biggest or more, most important thing that people who are either in retirement or planning for should be looking at. Well... You know, the, the guide is available on our website at tridelta.ca, and it's, and it's got, again, a whole bunch of information for free that I think is, is valuable. Um, one of the most popular items we have is, is a CPP calculator and old age security calculator. So people always ask us, should I take my Canada pension plan at age 60 or wait until 65 or wait until 70? Um, and there's there's financial benefits for it, um, and there's a calculator that helps you helps guide you on that. But that's a very big question that people have, uh, especially now. Another uh, question that people have too is whether they should use the equity in their home because many people, you know, in retirement age, have maybe paid off their mortgage or are nearing that. Using the equity in your home is it a good idea? Well, I think it's I think it's actually a very good idea in in a lot of cases. Obviously, when interest rates are higher, it's a little bit less of a good idea than if interest rates are lower. But you have a lot of people who have they might have a house that's worth a million, two million dollars, 
and they don't have a lot of outside savings. And then they feel like they're forced to sell their house that they don't want to, or they're forced to do things they don't want to do. When the reality is, even when you're retired, even when you don't have employment income, you can pretty easily get a home equity line of credit and draw some money that might allow you to stay in your house another five, ten years. You can check out more potential sources of income in retirement in the Canadian Retirement Income Guide at TriDelta Private Wealth, online at tridelta.ca. Ted, thanks for the time. Enjoy the day. Thank you. Ted Rechaffin is the president and CEO of TriDelta Private Wealth. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.